This morning, uh, Tracy and I had a couple of misfires on the way out the door. We forgot our crock pot and we forgot uh, my coat and a book I was going to bring. But I remembered the sermon and I remembered the bacon wrapped sausages. So, <laughs> priorities, people. Last fall, before we started on Romans, Pastor John uh, started to work his way through the Psalms. And he got to Psalm 10. And Pastor uh, Richard and I are going to pick up this morning where he left off. Uh, We think that this will not only be beneficial for us, for the church, um, but will provide us a constant series as we go forward. Um, If you recall from the introduction that John did last year or from your own personal study, there are several different types of psalms. There's a a psalm of lament where David cries out to God in uh, the middle of dire circumstances. There is a a psalm of praise where David or others are praising God for who he is and what he's done. Um, There's there's psalms of thanksgiving or or psalms of repentance. Uh, Psalm 51, very famous psalm of repentance that David uh, writes after he is confronted with his sin uh, with Bathsheba. There are some prophetic psalms. I'm thinking like Psalm 22 that points directly to Jesus. We see details in that psalm that uh, speak directly to the crucifixion. Um, There are wisdom psalms. And and then this morning we're going to encounter a type of psalm that confesses trust in God. So this morning, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Psalm 11. Psalm 11. David says, In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, Flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be their portion. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. May God bless the reading of his word. David walks through in this psalm an argument with a detractor. He encounters men, uh, possibly even friends, who are giving him bad counsel. He rejects their counsel, and he expresses faith in God. Though we are tempted to flee in the face of earthly trials, we seek refuge and find our confidence in the Lord. As, As David walks us through this simple truth, the first thing we see in the first half of this psalm is a fearful temptation. We see a fearful temptation. David starts by asking his tempter a question. He says, how can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to the mountain? He he appears to be addressing those who were giving him bad advice. How can you say this to me? What is wrong with you? Who do you think you are? Uh, How can you be saying these things to me? Uh, Immediately, David is putting his tempter in his place with the way that he asked the questions. Now, we can't be sure in this passage what the dire circumstances are. We, we know that David encountered several of those in his life, right? He could be 
Um, speaking of a time where King Saul was after him for his li- uh, trying to take his life, it could be later on in his life with his son Absalom. We, we don't know for sure what David was facing when he penned this psalm, but one thing we do know for sure, from a human perspective, it looked bad. It looked, it looked dire. It doesn't really matter what the circumstances were. We know by what the people are saying, this looked bad. Um, but even as things looked bad outwardly, David expresses confidence in God. And he expresses contempt for what the people are saying. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said that David's words import some passion, a disgust of the advice. David trusts God so much that he asks his tempter a question uh, in a way that puts him in his place. How can you say this to my soul? David unpacks the advice that his frenemies are giving him. He says, they're saying, flee like a bird to the mountain, for behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? They, they tell him to flee. They tell him to fly like a bird, to fly away. This, this implies that he should leave quickly, that he should run, that he should go now and not look back. This is an urgent call to get away from the danger. And, and they tell him to go to your mountain. They don't, they don't specify a mountain here. It doesn't really matter. It, it's speaking to a safe place. Go to a safe place to avoid the danger. This is a place of refuge, somewhere David can retreat from whatever is facing him. And what is the danger? It says, it says that the wicked bend the bow, and they have an arrow ready to destroy him. Those of you who bow hunt here can uh, relate to the imagery that David is using. Uh, if you are el- hunting the, uh, the elusive uh, eight-point white-tail buck in Michigan, um, you do several things, right? You get up really early, uh, way before we should be getting up. Uh, if, if you're serious about it, you clothe yourself in, in scent-free camouflage, and you walk carefully out into the woods so you don't make a noise. You, you, you climb up into your tree stand, and then you wait forever. You wait forever, a really long time. If you're a good hunter like Pastor Richard or my dad over here, you can sit there silently without moving and making a sound for a long time. If you're like me, after a short time, you pull out a book or probably my iPhone, and I'm engaged in something else, occupying my mind with something else. It's probably why my freezer is empty right now. Um, Finally, finally, if you're lucky, if you've done everything right, if, if, if you put out the bait pile right, if you've, if you've been quiet, if you have not made a, a, a sound or disturbed uh, nature enough, um, one of them will make their way to you. So you pick up the bow. All right, you pick up the bow. It's just been sitting there. You fix the arrow to the string, and you bend the bow. Uh, now, now, even with today's compound bows, it takes effort, right? It takes effort to pull back the string. It takes effort to hold it there. And you have to wait for the exact moment to let the arrow fly. Uh, this is not a position that you can hold for an extremely long time. You don't bend the bow when you first get out there. You bend the bow when you're ready to shoot. You're waiting for that double lung shot. You have this limited amount of time uh, before you take down Bambi's dad. Right? You're ready to rock and roll when you bend the bow. There's an imminent kill shot coming. David's friends are expressing to him danger is imminent. The enemy is at the gate. They have bent the bow. The danger is real, and it's coming. 
It will not delay. Calamity is coming, and in this case, time is of the essence. They tell him they will take out the foundation. He's, he's likely referring to um, the entire social order that David is responsible for. They're, they are figuratively aiming the bow at him. They intend to undermine and disrupt everything that he stands for. So, so run! Retreat! Get out of there! Get out of Dodge! David says, no. All right, so, so this begs the question. Is retreat always wrong? Is that what David's saying here? Is retreat always wrong? Is it always wrong in the face of danger to run away? Didn't David actually do this often? Didn't Saul throw a spear at David and he took off? Uh, Didn't David flee from Saul and his soldiers at many times when his life was in danger? Uh, We see this, but we also see examples of David standing his ground, right? We see him against Goliath. That would have been a time would have been easy to flee. We see David as a mighty warrior leading battles, leading armies into battle. He wasn't shrinking back. So why in this case is David rebuking his tempter for telling him to retreat? Why does he have contempt in his voice when he asks him the question? Why is it wrong for them to tell him to fly away to a place of safety, a mountain of refuge? I think, I think the answer lies in the very first sentence of Psalm 11. In the Lord I take refuge. This is not a song of lament crying out his dire circumstances. This is not a psalm pleading to God for help. And this is, this is not a desperation cry. This is a psalm of confidence in God. David expresses confidence in his faith. David, David expresses that he has faith in the Lord, and the Lord is the one in whom he finds refuge. So, so is, it, is it always wrong to run? Well, that depends, right? So like many situations that we're faced with, it's a heart thing. Where do you find your security? Who are you trusting? Where is your refuge? David friend, David's friends encourage him to run, not because it is a wise thing to do or a strategic thing to do. They encourage him to run out of fear. Behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? What can you do, David? The wicked are coming in the dark, secretly, in stealth mode. They're aiming the bow at you. They're going to try and destroy you. They're going to try and take you down and knock you out. Be afraid. Be afraid. This is where the sin lies. All right. There are times when retreat is strategically the best move. Right? But it is never motivated out of fear. David escaped Saul on many occasions, but it was motivated not out of fear. He was unwilling to kill the Lord's anointed. We see Jesus himself escape the clutches of Jewish leaders in John 10 and retreating, uh, and he does this at other places, but it was not motivated out of fear. It was, his, it was not his appointed time to die. When it was his time to take a stand, Jesus did just that. Without fear, without hesitation, he marched to the cross. He stood before these men knowing full well what would happen to him. Fear is the sin that is being addressed. So, okay, okay so, so how does this speak to us today? How does this speak to you today? You're, you're not a political leader with enemies aiming the bow at you, right? 
They're not trying to take down your foundation. This is, this is more than that, this is 21st century America. You're not going to run to a mountain. You're not going to hide in a cave, right? Uh, but uh, this passage speaks to uh, very, very similar circumstances to what all of us face. I think we need to ask ourselves a couple of very important questions thinking through this. First, where is your refuge? Right? David begins this psalm by saying, uh, in a statement of fact, in the Lord, I take refuge. Is this true of you? Is this, is this true in your life? Is it, is it true across the board for you in good times and in bad times? I think it's very easy for us to say we take refuge in God when things are good. But when things go south, where do you turn? This is when we need God the most. This is when we need to turn to him in prayer the most. This is when we need to turn to his word the most. This is when Christian community is most important in our lives. We take refuge in the Lord. It, it might not necessarily be someone who is fighting against you. It might be difficult circumstances that you're encountering. When, when everything is crashing down around you and it seems that all hope is lost, where do you turn? It may uh, seem to you that things are not going to get better and you are tempted to retreat into a bubble. You're hurting and you're afraid. Take refuge in our God. Know that he is for you. He has promised to be faithful. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. David says explicitly that the Lord is his refuge. So, so, so where do you turn? This leads to the second question. Where are you tempted to hide? David has enemies here, and they're looking to pounce on him and, and take him down. Uh, from a human perspective, this can cause fear. Okay, so in your context, where are you tempted to hide? What about your faith in Christ? Are you afraid of what people might think of you? Are you scared that they might not like you anymore after they find out that you uh, serve a 2,000-year-old Jewish rabbi who claimed to heal people and brought a, a dude back from the dead? It sounds kind of weird, right? Are you scared that people might think you're a freak? Are you scared that people might think that you're like the crazy guy with the sign on his chest uh, yelling out on the street, turn or burn, right? E even, even if you're not afraid to let them know that you attend church or that you are a Christian, are you afraid to have conversations that uh, talk about the implications of your faith? Why are you the way you are? Why are you against abortion? Are you against women? Why don't you support same-sex marriage? Are you a bigot? Why do you think people of other religions are wrong? Are you so arrogant? Right? These are real conversations that are happening today. And there is a very real temptation for us as Christians to run and hide. There's a fear of being disliked, also a growing fear of losing your job or being ostracized or shunned from society. There is a temptation for Christians to shrink back in fear. And we, we can do this in a couple different ways, right? We, we, can, we can fail by giving in. We can fail by at least outwardly saying things that aren't going to offend people or, or conforming even what you think to what other people, what society is thinking and doing. We, we shrink back. We give in. We do not stand firm. 
Out of fear, we agree with our peers. This shows cowardice and a lack of conviction. Is this you today? Is this what you are like in those conversations today? Are you afraid to speak the name of Christ to your friends or to your family or to your coworkers or your neighbors out of, out of fear of what they might say or do against you? Friends, that is sinful. Another way we can fail out of fear is to retreat into a little Christian bubble completely disengaged with the world instead of winsomely and lovingly and boldly and repeatingly engaging with our neighbors, we surround ourselves only with like-minded believers. We might not go on like full Amish mode or, you know, crossway Christian compound, but we can retreat into a safe little bubble, right? We can retreat uh, uh, where we never have to talk in a way that is, uh, our faith is challenged, where we are only talking to people who completely agree with us, we do not actively reach out and love those who uh, need to know Christ, how are they supposed to hear the good news? If they do not see our lives up close and personal, how are they supposed to know what effect the gospel really has on us? If you retreat into a safe, comfortable existence and don't put yourself out, out there, fr friends, that is sin as well. Is this where you are today? Have you made an idol out of comfort? in the name of separation from the world? Have you twisted God's good command to free your heart from sin and instead retreated into a nice, comfortable, nominal Christianity where everyone agrees with you? We are to lovingly and winsomely engage with the lost. Jesus' Jesus's command to make disciples is not advice to be ignored, but a command to be obeyed. Addressing this point, one pastor said, this verse teaches us that however much the world may hate and persecute us, we ought nevertheless to continue steadfast in our post. We ought always to continue firm and unwaveringly in the faith of our having the call of God. Fr friends, do not operate out of fear, either in conforming to the world or disengaging from the world. Rather, in all circumstances, take refuge in the Lord. He is our strength. And he is our rock. David starts Psalm 11 by addressing a fearful temptation. Then in, and he asks the questions, how can you say I should be afraid? In the second half of the psalm, David expresses righteous confidence. He answers that by expressing righteous confidence. David says, starting in verse 4, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. All right, so let's work our way through this declaration. David declares that the Lord is in his holy temple and that his throne is in heaven. All right, using the imagery of holy temple, uh, this translation misses some of the nuance of what David's saying here. Um, both from the context and from the wording, he is literally saying that the Lord is in his holy palace. There, there is a direct uh, uh, allusion to royalty here rather than, rather than priesthood. Um, he is the king. He is in his palace and he is on his throne. God alone rules and reigns. He is the one in charge and he is the one that has all the power. All right, contrast that to what David's detractors were saying, what they were whispering in his ear. 
They warned David of men that aligned themselves against him. David says, look, look at my God. Look at who is in charge. Look who is on the throne. You think I'm going to be afraid of Saul? You think I'm going to be afraid of Absalom? You think I'm afraid of a man who can kill me? I am afraid of an all-supreme being. I am afraid of the Lord, someone that can kill both body and soul in hell. Listen, look, look who is on the throne in his royal palace, reigning over all things, even today. Right? I, I, I'm not going to be afraid of Mao Zedong, or Adolf Hitler, or Joseph Stalin, or Saddam Hussein, or Kim Jong-un, or uh, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. Look at who is on the throne. All right, right, bring it into our own country, right? I'm not going to be afraid of President Trump or President Clinton. Look who is on the throne. This may be the worst election we have in our lifetimes, um, but is that something we should fear? I'm not saying we should be disengaged from politics. Far, far from it. I think Christians should be very engaged and very concerned about how their country is run, about our moral compass as a country, about how people are treated, etc., um, but at the end of the day, we do not operate out of fear, all right? Our God is on the throne, and he is over all of it. He sees all things. He knows all things. He is the one that is in charge. William Plummer put it much more eloquently than I could. He said, on earth at present, all is confusion. One can obtain no justice or equity, but I do not trust in man. But in him whose kingdom ruleth forever, ever dealing in righteousness, ever lifted up on the power, uh, above the power of malice, and never relinquishing his rights as governor and judge of all. Like David, we need righteous confidence in what God is doing because we know he is the one that is in charge of it. His enemies can align against him. They can fling arrows. They can even take him down. But in the end of the day, the Lord is the one that's running the show. David will be vindicated. Likewise, Christian, you will be vindicated. So do not operate out of fear. Stand firm. Do not stand firm out of some sort of misguided, uh, pull myself up by my bootstraps, manliness, or toughness, but out of a deep-seated confidence in God. He is in his holy palace, on his royal throne. God is in control. This applies to us in all circumstances, then. If we are fearful about losing our jobs, stand in confidence because God does rule and reign over all things. We find ourselves unjustly treated. We stand in confidence because God promises to be with us through it all. If we find ourselves mocked or derided for placing our faith in the Lord, we stand in confidence because the God of the universe tells us that he is in charge of all things. The Lord is in control. It is not a trite thing to pray for yourself or for others in a time of difficulty. The Lord is in his holy palace on his royal throne. To whom else should I turn? David is expressing confidence in God, but how does he know that God then is for him? How does he know that God will not strike him down along with his oppressors? How does he know that he is aligned with the Almighty rather than a rebellious enemy? He goes on in verse 5. says, The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be their portion of their cup. 
For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. David expresses confidence in God because he knows that God is a righteous judge. He looks upon sinful deeds and he will punish the wicked. He speaks here of an eternal and a final punishment. He looks, he looks upon the righteous and God says that he will one day vindicate them. They shall behold his face. David has confidence in this situation because of, he has faith in the promises of God. Christian, as, as, as a child of God, you ought to have confidence to trust him, to take a hold of him in all things. He will not let you down. Those who through Christ, are made right before the Lord, can trust that at the end of the day, they will be with him forever. All right, so admittedly, this part of the psalm can be uncomfortable. Right? Verse 5 says, God hates the wicked. God hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. This is uncomfortable, especially given some of the things we commonly hear all around us today. It is a very common thing to hear someone say, God hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. You've heard this, right? In an attempt to make sense of a God who justly condemns sin, but mercifully and lovingly saves sinners, they make a misguided theological statement. All right, so, so there's a couple things wrong with that summary. First of all, it treats sin as if it was disjointed from a person, as if it was if it was something that existed outside of us. It wrongly implies that sin is something outside of us, that it exists on its own. No, sin is ingrained into the fallen human condition. Right? It, is, it is not simply a rebellion against God, but it is a person's rebellion against God. It is always and necessarily tied to a person. God cannot hate an ethereal thing that just exists theoretically. God hates sin, yes, he hates the sin of individuals. So, so what do we say then? Do we say that God hates sinners? Look, look, at, look at the text. Right? Psalm 5. Psalm 11.5. His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Look at Habakkuk where it says God is too pure to look on evil and cannot look at wrong. Psalm 5. David says, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes, you hate evildoers. All right, skip over to the New Testament. John 3, we see Jesus saying, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Not the wrath of God remains on his sin. The wrath of God remains on him. It's personal. The sin is not separated from the sinner. All right, so, so what do we say then? God hates sin. Yes, God hates sinners. Yes, if we believe what we're reading in the text. All right, all right, so as soon as you say that, you get lumped in with all kinds of hate groups out there, right? From, from uh, evil, racist slave owners of years ago to something uh, in our day that we see uh, even around us, right? We see... Uh, people like Westboro Baptist Church. This, this group of arrogant, misguided fools have made headlines by picketing funerals of soldiers. And, and they often and famously carry around signs that say, God hates fags. They, they show disdain for fellow humans made in God's image. And they elicit anger from people who uh, are hurt when they are hurting the most. 
rather than weeping with those who weep and offering a hope of mess, a, a, a message of hope and forgiveness. They uh, take this time to zero in on our particular sin and express a disdain um, and a disgust for the people. They show themselves to neither be Baptist nor a church. Their method and their tone convey so much, and it is obvious that they do not love their neighbor. Uh, they look down on them. All right, okay, okay. So, so what do followers of Christ say? What do faithful followers of Christ say? Does God hate sinners? What does the text say? It says God hates sinners. All right, and, and God loves sinners. Right? God hates sin. God hates sinners, and God loves sinners. All right, all right. How do we know this? How can we be sure? God hates sinners. Over and over again, the Bible promises that the wicked will be punished. He promises that those who disobey his righteous commands will receive their just reward. Psalm 9, the wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. 2 Thessalonians 1, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. All right, consider Jesus' own words. He says, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. And you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. God's righteous wrath is due sinners. All sinners. This cannot be glossed over. This cannot be minimized. God hates sin. God hates sinners. And there is a required punishment for our rebellion against him. But look to the cross. Look to the cross. It is at the cross where we see God's hatred towards sinners on display as his wrath is poured out on Jesus. And it is at the cross we see God's merciful love for sinners. At the cross we see God's merciful love for sinners. God showed his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God placed all the punishment in due sinners on Jesus. Jesus took the wrath, rightly do me, rightly do you. He paid the price for sinners. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul summed it up in Romans 3, saying, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This is where Westboro misses the point. This is where we can be mischaracterized. God hates sin, yes. God hates sinners, yes. God loves sinners. And such were all of you. When we offer this message of hope, this message of salvation, we do this from a place knowing that that is exactly where we stood. We do this from a place knowing that God's wrath was rightly and justly upon us. God hates sin, and God hates sinners, and that includes us. And, and God loves sinners.
look to the cross. He sent his son to redeem people, to redeem sinners, so we could enjoy him forever. Knowing this, how can we be afraid of temporal, earthly things? Right? How can you be tempted to flee? Christian, do not fear. Stand strong in the confi- with confidence in the promises of God. Like David say, in the Lord I take refuge, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we... Um, We confess this morning, we too, like David, are tempted to flee, to shrink back, to turn away. Uh, But Lord, I pray that you give us strength and confidence in you, knowing that uh, you hate and will punish sin and sinners, but you have given us Jesus. And at the cross, you showed that you love sinners and that you uh, you are holding out this message of salvation for all who would believe. Lord, I pray that you would you would give us confidence in you this morning and that uh, rather than shrinking back, Lord, that we would be emboldened to uh, live and speak for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.